Well, good morning. Good to be here with you. And we're resuming our Gospel of John series, What If Everything Jesus Said Was True? Pastor Dan is isolating this morning after a contact, but uh, he looks forward very, very much to returning next week and preaching from John chapter 5, which he was going to do today. So we're going to drop in on chapter 4 of John today. Last week we talked about honoring, and we talked about uh, how Jesus loved people, how he viewed them as having such incredible value, and how his conversations with them are so fascinating and challenging to us. People matter deeply to God. You matter deeply to God, more, I think, than we will ever know or understand. You are loved and are created in the image of God, worthy of all respect and compassion. And every person that you look in the eye today matters deeply to God. And so as we drop into John chapter 4, we see there the account of a Samaritan woman's encounter with Jesus. We read that Jesus was traveling north from Judea, where Jerusalem is, up to Galilee. Now, if you look on a map, the most direct route to get from Judea to Galilee is through Samaria. And so we read with some surprise where it says, now he had to go through Samaria. It was necessary. But it wasn't actually necessary. As a matter of fact, often, geographically at least, people didn't do that. I came from Kitchener to Elmira this morning, and I went through Waterloo. But if for some reason I was just so um, pro-Kitchener and anti-Waterloo, I suppose for some reason I might drive around through Breslau and come up that way. I could do that, I suppose. There wouldn't be much point to that, but I could do it. But if you were a Jewish person living in Jerusalem and you wanted to get to Galilee, you by no means were likely to go through Samaria because you didn't want to be with them. You didn't like Samaritans and you didn't want to go. So you would go around a longer way to go through. So when it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, John is making a point that Jesus intended to do this led by the Spirit because he was not going to participate in the racism of his day. He wasn't going to participate in the attitudes that people had towards Samaritans. He deliberately went through Samaria. And so to say that Jews and Samaritans disliked each other is a huge understatement. It went from indifference all the way to hatred, a common expression of the time, a prayer, may I never set eyes on a Samaritan. Centuries of mistrust and political, religious, and racial tension. You know, this ancient dispute seems so remote to us now, and we lose how powerful it was that Jesus chose a Samaritan to be the hero of one of his most famous stories, the story of the good Samaritan. And yet these two groups, Jews and Samaritans, would be the first enemies that God called to live as sisters and brothers in Christ Jesus. And he's called us as followers of Jesus to community around the cross with people that sometimes don't agree with each other. And oh, the challenge of that 
has been difficult in these days. We are continually enticed to divide into defined camps of us and them. And to view people that, whose opinions are odd to us and look and say, I don't know how they could have that opinion. And then God calls us together to live in community. So this story speaks directly to us this morning. How will we interact with people with whom we disagree? I talked about honor last week and how we should honor people. And by no means was I suggesting that honoring someone required us to have the same opinion. We might not share the same opinion at all on many things. But we can yet honor people. How do we do that? Where we see insurmountable barriers, God sees opportunity. Where Jewish and Samaritan people saw insurmountable walls, Jesus saw opportunity. And so we find him at a well in a village near Samaria. His disciples had headed into town for food, and and here's Jesus alone, tired and thirsty. And as a woman approaches the well, he asks her very, very simply, could you please give me a drink? I preached on this text in the past, and I, I had a whole sermon outline. It was called Techniques of the Evangelist, and I had formulas with bullet points of how we should evangelize. And I look at it now and go, I don't know. I mean, it might be useful, I suppose, if you happen to meet a woman at a Samaritan well, and then you'd be all set. But I look at it now, and I think maybe Jesus was just tired and thirsty, and this opportunity came about. And just because he's the kind of person that he is, he just simply sees this as an opportunity for conversation with another human being. And in his humanity, he reached out to her, listening to the Spirit, and was just real in the situation. Now, here's an understatement. (laughs) Jesus is so much better than I am. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? But in these situations, it just comes out so obviously because when I'm tired, that is the last time I want to have a significant conversation with someone. And yet Jesus, in this situation, realizes, I'm thirsty. But then what about the thirst of this woman? What about the deep soul thirst of this woman? And could I speak to her? There are so many cultural reasons why this conversation should never have taken place. That he was in Samaria at all. That she was a Samaritan that she was a woman, and given the time of day, you don't come to a well at noon in a hot climate. And so there's an assumed reputation as well. And so as a rabbi, he would have known the expression at the time, let no one talk with a woman on on the street. No, not even to his own wife. And so Jesus broke through all of that baggage to find common ground with this woman. Jesus finds common ground. Everything that the woman would say was essentially to say to Jesus, we are so different. And Jesus' responses were all to say, maybe not so different. We both get thirsty. We're both human. Let's start there. We've got something in common. You see, Jesus had a radically different view of women than people in his day. He was the great emancipator, a radical honor, seeing women as equal recipients of the blessings of the kingdom of God. 
and worthy to know the truth about him. Now, this wasn't just any woman. This was a foreign woman, and again, given the time of day, presumed to be a sinful woman, and so it would have been no, no, no. And so I find it so fascinating that Jesus, the holiest of humans, was so completely comfortable around and attractive to sinners. This woman, rejected by the Jews because of her race, rejected by her own people because of her life story, comes deliberately at noon, avoiding contact and probably experiencing some shame. And yet she's ready to unload her life story to this person who really, truly listens to her. Here was a woman that Jesus had created whom he had loved from before the foundation of the world. And he comes to her with a very simple and disarming request, making eye contact, probably a smile, asking for a drink. It's so ordinary. It's just a favor, expressing a need. Maybe we think we have to come with all the answers to people, all our lives perfectly put together and present that to the people we're trying to win for Jesus. And, and Jesus comes in his need, in humility, I'm thirsty. I need. Can you help me? I'm a person like you. We both get thirsty. I'm alone at a foreign well and I don't have a cup. Can you help me? The thing is, Jesus could have cheated, if you like. He could have broken the rules, created water on the spot, created the cup for that matter. He's not going to do any of that. He comes in his humanity and his weakness and says, can you help me? giving her the dignity, the opportunity to help and to respond. Jesus totally at ease here. His inconvenience supplies opportunity for conversation. Again, so many reasons why this conversation might not have happened or so easily could have gone off the rails. The woman is taken aback that he's speaking to her at all. And she can't help but poke fun at his apparent awkward situation. You are Jewish, and I'm Samaritan, and you ask me for a drink. Now, how's this going to work? Because you people won't lower yourselves to even use a cup we've touched. How are you going to pull this off? And Jesus does not respond to that sarcasm in kind. We have nothing in common. Oh, don't we? You see, Jesus gave up his rights to win an argument. Rather than building an argument, he wants to build bridges. He's choosing to respond in love. Her throwing up all the reasons why they should be at odds, all the flashpoints, and Jesus instead responding with grace and staying on message. So first, Jesus arouses her curiosity. You know, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Intriguing sentence. Now, living water would have been understood at the time to mean nothing more than a moving stream. S uh, stale water was in a well, but a, a, a stream, that was living water, moving, fresh water. 
I can get you that kind of water. He's, he's arousing her curiosity with a twinkle in the eye, giving her the dignity of controlling the search. Not, I have all the answers and you'd better listen to me, but rather, you have an exciting opportunity to discover. He responds to her sarcasm with grace and this beautiful invitation dripping with meaning. The conversation continues. Uh, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you suggesting that you're greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself and also his sons. You see, the woman was trying to stress all the things that divided them. Our father Jacob, not you Jews, our father Jacob, he gave us, the Samaritans, this well. She's amused, she's intrigued. Are you belittling our traditions? We're the true descendants of Jacob after all she says. Now, Jesus certainly could have taken that argument on. He chose not to. There's an expression I found interesting. You don't have to attend every argument you're invited to. That's a good one right now, isn't it? We don't have to attend every argument that we're invited to. Rather, we can choose to respond and stay on message. And as Jesus does with attractive, gentle love, he's hinting at a bigger world. He won't bite and go down the rabbit trail. He's not interested in winning an argument. He wants to win the person. And so he's appealing to the deeper craving of her heart. Private opinions, I've got them. You've got them. But let's stay on the message. Jesus is not attached to those things. He's staying on the eternal message. You see, my opinion about this or about that will not matter in eternity, but my commitment to Jesus will. Jesus is risen from the dead. That's our message. He is the living water, the answer to the deep cravings of the human heart. That's our message. We cannot afford to be sidetracked from it. Jesus answered, whoever drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, if everything Jesus said is true, if he is risen from the dead, then he is the answer to the deep craving of the human heart. That is our message. And Jesus is lifting this up above the divide, sidestepping this who's greater, Jacob or Jesus argument, and keeping it on message, speaking to her about her deep, true thirst. And that's good news indeed. This gift that Jesus speaks above surpasses anything found in religion. Anything found in politics, anything found in tradition, there's no well here that's any match for Jesus. And he respects her enough to allow her to unravel the mystery of who he is, the fountain of true life. Instead of arguing with her over things that she reveres very deeply, so the woman says to him, notice the conversation continues, 
because Jesus allows that. He doesn't shut it down. Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I don't know how much she believes at this point. Maybe still a bit of, oh, this would be a good one. Give me some of this water. Maybe a little bit of that. Or maybe just, that sounds actually pretty convenient. I'd like a water source that I didn't have to keep coming again and again to this well. And, and for some of us, we, we maybe come to Jesus with an idea of, make my life a little more convenient. If you're who you say you are, make my life better. Some preachers even, even say that that's what the gospel is about. It's about making life better. Come to Jesus and you'll be wealthy and healthy. And then when things don't go well in life, we somehow turn back to God and say, what happened? How come you didn't look after me the way I thought you should? And Jesus is lifting her eyes to a greater reality, not a promise of a struggle-free life. Jesus has something much deeper in mind. So the first thing he has to do is clear aside the substitutes that she has tried to quench her thirst with. You have to identify those substitutes so that you can look for the real thing. So he tells her, really, rather abruptly and rather surprisingly, go call your husband and come back. You see, Jesus saw her pain, but before we can receive the true quenching of our heart thirst, we have to give up the substitutes. I have no husband. <laughs> now, she's had a lot to say until now, and this is a pretty crisp reply. I have no husband. Now, at this point, Jesus could have said what? You're lying, right? He could have said that. Instead, he says, you told the truth. <laughs> How did he do that? Well, you see, she says, I have no husband. And he's so sensitive. He says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with right now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So not you lied, but you told the truth, seeking however he can to affirm her. Now, I don't recommend this, by the way. <laughs> I don't recommend you go up to somebody and just come out with something like this. He was led by the Spirit, and he had such confidence in that leading that he could, he could do this. But do you see that he neither condemns or excuses her, but targets that area of her life that is keeping her from experiencing true life. All these relationships that you've had are an attempt to, to answer that deep craving of your heart. Later she would say, come see a man who's told everything that I ever did. That thirst that's causing her to seek meaning in these cycles of failed relationships. So she's getting a little uncomfortable now. And she says, well, sir, I can see you're a prophet. And she's going to take another attempt to divert uh, attention off of, of her. And so she says, well, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, pointing to Mount Gerizim, that would be uh, seen from exactly where this well is. But you claim, you Jews, you guys claim that there's a place we must worship in Jerusalem. Let's have a theological debate Let's get it down to an argument, and I'm right, and you're wrong. As a matter of fact, let's talk about that temple, because at this point, it would have been a ruin on the side of the mountain. You Jews wrecked it. You're the guys that destroyed it. Let's get down to that level, Jesus, and he won't do it. He doesn't shut it down. He doesn't argue. He wants to keep it on the main message. So he says, dear woman, 
a time is coming when we will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. God is our Father. How kind of Jesus, you see. It's not about this mountain or, or this temple. We don't have to have a fight about which temple is better. Let's stay on message. Now, he does say this. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, wait a minute. Did, did Jesus get off track here? Is he, is he being argumentative? No. He must insist on this one thing. We, don't, we can have all sorts of opinions about a lot of things, but on the person of Jesus Christ, we can have only one view. He is the way to God. On that, we cannot move. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It is through Jesus Christ that we come to the Father. We cannot move on that. That is central. And so Jesus, on that one point, must insist. Salvation is from the Jews, i.e., the Jewish Messiah, me. More on that later, he, he would say. And so, on that one point. But then he goes on and says, the time is coming when it's now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. They're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So he's lifting the discussion to universal truth. These local arguments will soon be obsolete, he says, because we will have come to the cross. Oh, he kept his powder dry for what actually matters. Who is Jesus? He takes the discussion to a new level. It's not if you present Jesus to someone, is do I have to join your church? Do I have to become a part of your denomination? Do I have to think like you? Do I have to agree with all your political stands? Jesus says, soon none of that will matter. We're bidding a picture of bigger God, the God who is bigger than our nation, than our politic, than our denomination, than our style. This mountain or that mountain, this temple, that temple. No, those distinctions are outmoded at the cross. Do you see the hour that he's talking about? The hour has come. That's his code for the cross. And do you see that when we come to the cross, it's not us and them it's us and Him. We're all wrong at the cross. We're all in need there. Level ground. And we look not to each other with suspicion, but we look to Him with awe that we find ourselves in His mercy and His grace there. It changes everything. God is our Father, and we are His children. Oh, and he's so much bigger than you and I, than our debates and our opinions. We are family there under our Father. The woman goes on. Well, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Maybe one last attempt to try to divert the conversation. Let's talk about the Samaritan Messiah versus the Jewish one and have an argument about that. Which Messiah? But Jesus saw underneath that the spiritual longing. Oh, that I could know the truth. When Messiah comes, he'll, he'll tell us the truth. And then Jesus says to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. 
I am Messiah. That is the first time that he said that, and it's the only time before the trial that he made it that clear. So this self-declaration that he was Messiah, he makes to this foreign woman what an honor he has given to her. Just then the disciples returned. They were surprised that uh, he was talking with a woman, but no one asked, why are you talking with her? You can be sure they were thinking it. Why is he talking to her? And then this beautiful little phrase, leaving her water jar, the woman goes back to town and said to her people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She leaves her jar. Either she forgot it, or maybe subtly leaving it for Jesus so he could have that drink that he wanted. But what is remarkable is that she goes back into town not to hide, but to tell everyone there, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Do you see what has changed for this woman? There's no shame any longer. She'd come at noon so no one would see her. Now, without shame, she talks to the whole town. She'd returned not with her jar, but with hope. The woman had left not just her jar, but her shame behind. The truth had set her free. I don't know if Jesus ever got that drink of water, but he found this interaction deeply satisfying. The disciples said to one another, did somebody else buy him food? They just don't know what's going on. But many of the Samaritans from the town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. So when they came, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Because of his words, many more became believers. And they said, we're no longer believing just because what you said, woman, but now we've heard for ourselves that he really is the Savior of the world. This is so remarkable that these Samaritans would now recognize this Jewish rabbi as the Savior of the whole world. And don't miss how kind and hospitable these strangers were in opening up their homes to 13 people, Jesus and the 12, presumably. And they stayed for two days. Barriers had been broken down in Christ. Ah, oh, these divides and issues of back then seem so trivial to us. But we, like them, can get lost in the weeds and we will miss the stream of the moving of the Holy Spirit if we get tied up in these events and these opinions. We need to be in the center of what God is doing. To get out, to find common ground. Is our goal to conform people to our opinions? Or do we want to see people transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and adopted into God's family? Is it us and them, or is it us and Him? And if we continue to divide, we will miss what God wants to do across divides. God is in the business of breaking down walls. Think of Ephesians chapter 2. Breaking down that wall of enmity between, in that case, Gentile and Jew. But between fill in the blanks, whatever it is, God wants to break those things down. Not that we won't have opinions. Of course we will. But we see that our allegiance to Jesus Christ absolutely supersedes any of those distinctions. That we are one in Christ.
that we serve a God who is alive and we must stay on message. Do we want to be right about the issues or do we want to be right with God? My opinions about current events will not matter in eternity, but my opinion about Jesus Christ will absolutely matter. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that is the most important message that we have. Do we build arguments or do we build bridges? Give a reason for what you believe, Peter writes, with gentleness and respect. Jesus said, those who drink of the living water Jesus gives through his spirit will never be thirsty. It becomes a fresh, bubbling stream within them, giving them eternal life. Is anyone thirsty? Let them come to me, Jesus said. Rivers of living water will flow from your heart. That's our message. And it's true. We have a life-giving message in Jesus Christ that will satisfy the deepest cravings of the human heart. Let's stay on message. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the fountain of life. And we want to lift you up and make you our main message. Lord Jesus, death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring the praise of your glory, for you are raised to life again. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. Amen.